Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's always a, a, a just a great privilege as my daughter runs out uh, the door and to get up here and be able to share um, what, well, just a word together and spend some time together. And, and today we're going to be wrapping up a series that Peter called or was telling us about Good News Now, and it's. We've been looking at the Gospel of Mark, which is the first written account of Jesus' ministry that we have. And um, what, what's amazing about it is it's just that it's just, it's a really complex story that seems so, it's so well written and so well told that it seems simple. And it's about immediately, immediately Jesus is doing this, immediately Jesus is doing that, immediately this happened. It's just a rapid paced story. And ultimately, you see people just kind of going, whoa, what? Who is this Jesus? Like, I can't believe that this is the case. Who is this guy? And we're starting to see responses. And, and the response was kind of intermixed. And, but we're starting to see two groups forming. One group following and being excited about Jesus and going where he's, ever, where he's going and following him. And then we see another group that's growing, that's becoming hostile to what he's saying. And really hating what he's saying and, and seeking out after to, to destroy him. And, and we saw that last week as Andy was preaching that, um, that Jesus came to bring life and not the law. And this was just absolutely, absolutely shocking and offensive to the religious, to the preachers and teachers of the day. They were just absolutely angry and wanting to destroy him. So angry that they were willing to kind of um, go to their enemy and say, Hey, uh, we got to just deal with this Jesus because we both have a common enemy here. He's going after the religious stuff. He's he's seemingly going after, uh, you know, the secular government. We have to come together and go after him. And then we have, what we saw was... Well, and, and really what was the religious were going is that he was undermining the very foundations of what they thought true Judaism was, the Sabbath and the law. And Jesus said, no, the, the Sabbath was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. And it was meant to be bring life and to have relationship with God. And it's become a handcuff. It's become a law. It's become a restriction. It's, it's more like you're more fearful of the Sabbath. Am I going to mess up and then be killed? Or is it meant to go and rejoice and have fun and see life be given as Jesus, even on the Sabbath, healed a man with a crooked hand and, and gave life? That's the reason why the, the, the religious are going after him. They, he cannot do this. He's destroying what we think Judaism is all about. And, and then what that's going on is Jesus leaves the synagogue, as we see, and then he goes out to the, uh, the, near the sea. And a group of people from every direction, from the, the northwest to the south to the east to the west, they all come along. This is Gentile nation. This is Jewish nation. Uh, and they go to the Sea of Galilee, and he starts preaching and teaching outside of the synagogue. And people are following him. There's a massive crowd. And he's healing. And even the, uh, the unclean, demonized people are saying this. The, the spirits are saying this is the son of God. And you're kind of going, what is going on? You have two groups, the religious who should be following him or hostile to him. And all these other people, sinners and tax collectors and all these people that should not be following him are following him. And, and so the, I think it's just absolutely Jesus, again, kind of bucking the trend, redefining everything. And that's exactly what, again, Mark wants to do is... Everybody had this assumption and presumption of what the Messiah was going to bring. And Jesus is totally redefining that. 
And today he's going to be doing something. So he, he redefines religion, and now he's going to be redefining a, an institution that was incredibly important for them at the time, and for even us, family. He's going to be changing the whole thing. And family for them at that time was everything. I mean, if I was living in the first century, my name would be David, the son of Timothy. It wouldn't be David C., right? I would be David, the brother of Stephen, David, the brother of Michaela, because that, my whole identity, who I was, is, was wrapped up in who my family was. And that was the most important relationship. And nothing else would get in the way of that. And Jesus is going to say, no, it's actually something different than this. I'm going to say that there's something greater. Following me is going to be more important than even the priority of family. And that's something that even, that's hard to say even in today's culture, in our culture, where family is fragmented. You have divorce. You have um, you have people who don't ever get married and you have all kinds of weird structures of family, same-sex marriages, all kinds of weird stuff that's taking place in our culture that wouldn't even be fathomable in the first century. And, and, and that's hard to say is that Jesus is going to redefine family for, for us. And for me too, even in the weird, crazy uh, family that I had, Seawright was the most important thing for me. I wanted to be I wanted to meet up all to the standards that I thought my father and my mother and my grandfather and my grandmother had for me. And I was going to do everything I could to please them. Because all I wanted to do was please them. Because family was so important to me. I mean, even with the divorces and the abuse and alcoholism and all those kinds of things, I processed it and, and thought, Seawright is the best thing. We're great at athletics and we're, we're smart. So that means that's what I have to do. And I, I enjoyed my family, my extended family during the summertime. We'd go in the, the backyard of my grandparents' house. We would swim together every, every weekend during the summer. We had barbecues. We absolutely loved each other. And all I wanted to do was please them. And, and then I became a Christian when I was about 20 and started making choices uh, that they were, they were fine with. And they supported me in my religion, as they would say. Uh, and they wanted what's best for me. But I started making choices that they were starting to feel uncomfortable about. My mom stopped hanging out with me and started stopped being around me just because of the way that I lived. They, she was kind of like, I don't really, really want to be around that because it makes me feel uncomfortable. Um, and, and then I started making choices that were ridiculous even for my whole family, both sides of my family. Like, uh, for instance, I was going to move from Portland and fly across the continent and over an ocean and go to the U.K., and I was going to take my wife and child, and their concerns were, how are you going to pay for everything? You're going to be so far away. Uh, who's going to take care of you? Um, how are you going to pay for your, your daughter's uh, college funds and trust? What are you going to do? There's no security whatsoever in this. And then you're going to do it twice because I did it twice. So I flew over the continent and I came back and now I'm going back again. And they're going, you've got to be kidding me. And even parts of my family are like, you, you love life so much and, and, and life is a blessing. You're going to have more than two kids. You have, a, you have a, a daughter and you have a son. You're going to have a third. Why would you want to do more diapers? And how are you going to pay for college? And how are you going to do trust? You, you know, we're sitting, well, we love life more than all those other things. Why not have another child? What's wrong with that if we're blessed to be able to have another child? And so... My family was continually trying to save me from what they thought was best and what I was keeping me from what's best. And sometimes those questions are good. I mean, I think if we're going to do something risky and radical and follow Jesus, I think you should have some people going to go, wait a minute, you know, you want to go where? And are you equipped to do that? Are you gifted to do that? Are those, all those kinds of things? But still kind of going, okay, though, you, you say you have all the right answers to that? Let's go for it. And I think for probably all of us, this is, I'm assuming that if you follow Jesus at any point in your life that 
there's going to be some people that are going to think that you're crazy. Because just think about the culture that we live in. To say that you're a Christian, people are going to go, one, they're oblivious to what that means really. Or two, they have all these assumptions about it and they think you're crazy. Hey, You've got to be crazy to, to actually say that you're a Christian and do those things and not do these things. And that doesn't seem to comp- compute at all. Just think about what, as, as Trinity Chippen, I'm talking about being transformed by the glorious love of the Trinity. What does that mean for us as a community when it comes to supporting certain things like, well, f- like family? We're going to say, hey, men, let's be initiators and spiritual leaders and be that role and, and, and let this be a place that's safe for men to be men and that also be a safe place for women to be women. And we're going to try to be a community that's united in the image of the Father loving the Son, the Father sending the Son, and the Son responding and wanting to, be, uh, to please His Father. Let's have a community shaped by that. And let's, let's try to meet people where they're at and you know, stand for justice, stand for truth, stand for right things, but in a warm, kind, humble way because God is warm and kind and humble. And that, in that kindness, we will find repentance and life change. That's what we want to see. That is going to be crazy to people. It's going to be crazy to people in the church. I mean, I was watching a video this week, and there's three big names in the church in the United States. Can't understand this guy because he's giving up book deals and conference talks and a mega church and giving it all away because he wants to go love on people in L.A. County. He's going to disappear and they're like, what are you doing? You can't do that. That's nuts. And they're trying to reconcile all the things he's doing because they're giving, he's giving up a voice. And he's saying, all I want to do is live simply and love Jesus. And I, want, I love these people. And if it means giving up all that, I'm going to go for them. And I'm going to go to the people in the third world. Because that's what I feel like me following Jesus leads me to. Not being deceived by all the hype and the fame. So even you're going to find that in the church. People kind of going, you're going to follow Jesus that way? You're nuts. And again, we find another story today in Mark where I think people are going to be saying the same thing. And I think people saying the same thing about Jesus that you might be shocked by. So the story begins in chapter 3 and verse 13. And it says that after he was, had this crowd and doing all this teaching near the sea, Jesus went up on the mountain or on the hills above the, the Sea of Galilee. And he called to, those, or called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Let's stop there. So Jesus goes away from the crowd. He goes up onto the mountainside or hillside, and he calls people to himself. And he, there's, is, there's, it's ambi- there's ambiguous about how many people he actually called. He, he, he calls to those whom he desired, and twelve respond. It could be just the twelve. But it could also have been a lot more people. I'm assuming it might be a lot more people. And 12 respond to him. And they, become, they come to be with him on the mountainside. I'm hoping that this might, if you're slightly familiar with the Bible, this would be uh, kind of um, be like, hey, this sounds like God being up on the mountain and the 12 tribes of Israel responding to him and following him and being with him. Here's 12 men coming to be with him. And, and Jesus calls him them apostles, which means messengers or ones that are sent out to proclaim. And, and I think be one, be with Jesus, and now be a part of Jesus' ministry. To go and proclaim the good news. To preach and teach that the, the kingdom is here and at hand. That to follow Jesus is to repent and believe that the kingdom is at hand. And, and to believe that he is the son of God, the son of man, and even the Messiah. And that, that, that in that, you have the authority to meet the needs of the needy. 
You have the authority to confront evil. And it's not just, you know, I have, I'm going to be a preacher and I'm going to stand up in front of all these people and preach. Or I'm going to go out in the park out back there or over there, excuse me. Because out there it's in the river, so you wouldn't really be able to stand on that. But if you go over there, you stand on a soapbox and preach in the open air. This is not just the preaching. It's, it's evangelism. It's, if I love someone, and you've heard this from us a lot, but I, I just dare you to say that you would have difficulty talking about someone that you adore. Your, your spouse, your, deep, your friend, your mother, your brother. People that you just absolutely adore. And you say, oh, I, you know, just never, they never come up. I just never have an opportunity to talk about those people. I... I I did defy that, that one, you have the, I think you have the capacity to talk about someone you, you know really well and that you love a lot and spend a lot of time with. And two, that they never come up in any kind of conversation naturally. And Jesus is saying here, well, and throughout the Bible, that Jesus is supposed to be more important than that. And relationship with him is supposed to be more important than that. Can you talk about Jesus in the context that you're in naturally? Because he's just going to come up. And I think that's kind of like, when you hear preaching, I don't think you necessarily have to think always that it's about being up front in, a whole bunch of, in front of a lot of people. Because, well, a lot of us don't want to be up here and are afraid to be up here, maybe not gifted to be up here. Um, uh, and it doesn't mean you can't go and meet people where they're at one-on-one and talk about Jesus. And in that context, that means Jesus is going to be with you. He's in that ministry, and you have authority to deal with the issues that need to be dealt with, even confronting evil like uh, people who are demonized by demons. So within that, these, these are the 12 men that he appoints in verse 16, picking it up. And, you have, and they, they're named. You have Simon, which is called, who's called Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, John, the brother of James, who are called the sons of thunder, as Jesus calls them. Then you have Andrew, who is Simon's brother, and Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew, who we met a couple weeks ago, who was a tax collector, who came and talked. We have Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Cananean, which oftentimes, even in the, the, in the well, was translated the zealot, uh, which he was probably part of the beginning of what would become a party called the zealots, who were a part of going against Rome and, and starting the whole uprising that ended with the destruction of the temple in the 70s or 70 AD. And then you have Judas Iscariot, the betrayed one. I think what you need to notice from this is that the 12 who came to be with Jesus from all walks of life. You have fishermen. You have a guy who was a tax collector, a traitor to the Jewish people. He, let, he went and worked for the Romans to tax the Jews, and he made money off of it. He was a traitor to them. And then you have even one that's named the, the one who's going to deliver Jesus over to the authorities. And all these men come together and with Jesus and join his ministry. And then this narrative starts to change. And this is where... Uh, Mark's complexity of the way he tells stories starts to show up. And what this is called is, is a sandwich, a Markin sandwich, believe it or not. And what I just want you to notice is you're going to have, in the beginning, we see the insiders, the 12. And then you're going to see these outsiders who are challenging, think Jesus is mad, think he's out of it. And then we're going to see who the insiders truly are at the end. And so you have insiders, outsiders, insiders. And this is starts to tra- uh, in verse 20. This starts to transition into from the insiders to the outsiders. So he says, then he went home. Jesus went home. And this is the home that we've seen numerous times. Peter and Andrew's home on, near the Sea of Galilee. Where it's the same place where the paralytic man was lowered into the, the house. Because there's so many people and there's the whole healing and, 
And people are shocked by the fact that not only does he have authority to forgive sins, but he helps somebody stand up and walk out of the house when he couldn't. And the crowd gathered again. And the crowd was so great that they couldn't even eat. There was not even room and busyness to eat. Because I think Jesus says, oh, look, there's a crowd here. Let's start giving and healing and teaching. He's just going to keep continually going. And that's another thing that's shocking about Jesus is that he's just continually giving of himself at times we would never think to give ourselves away. Like after a long week of being away from home and going home and then people showing up and saying, oh, we would say get away. And he's saying, oh, come on in. And, and word gets about this around. Word, word, that is, word gets around that he's back there. And his family heard of it in verse 21. And they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. So the family hears what's going on with Jesus. And they go, this can't be right. He's saying these weird things. He's doing these strange things. Let's go and save him. Even some commentaries think, well, they might have thought he didn't eat very much. And so he's gone a little loopy. And so now we're going to save him from that. I don't think that's really what's going on. I think he's, they're kind of afraid for him because he's teaching weird things. And they want to save him from himself. And so they go from, I think, Nazareth down to Capernaum. And they're going down to save him, to seize him, to get him out of that situation because he's going, they think he's crazy. His family thinks he's crazy. So when that journey starts, Mark leaves that narrative away and starts to talk about another narrative that's going to highlight this very issue that family thinks he's crazy. And he starts in verse 22 and it says, The scribes came down from Jerusalem and were saying, or were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons that he casts out the demons. So what you have is these scribes, these guys who are the people who have the inside knowledge. They were there to protect the traditions of Judaism. They were there, they copied the text, so they knew the law really well. You know, they didn't have copiers and printers at the time. They just literally wrote them hand by hand. And they did this, and not very many people at the time even knew how to read or write. It was about 10% of the people. And so they had this inside knowledge, lots of authority. And these scribes, I think, probably heard about what the scribes had witnessed a, a couple chapters ago with Jesus forgiving sins and healing a paralytic. And the word got around to them. And they come down from Jerusalem, down into C- Capernaum, to deal with this issue. These are the scribes who are really in charge. They're up in Jerusalem. And they start to kind of correct what's going on, I think, among the people. They're saying, no, 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 this isn't from God. This isn't the right thing. This is actually evil. Satan's trying to dupe you. This isn't good stuff. It, it, believe it or not, this is against the scriptures. This is against the words, against the traditions of the elders. This is evil. This is wrong. And actually, this guy's working with, with Satan. Actually, actually, what we say is that Satan is in control of him, and he's the one that's casting out demons. See, they're trying, he's trying, Satan's trying to clothe himself in light. And He's trying to show that this, this, this Jesus is the true Messiah. But re- actually, Satan is just trying to get more people to follow him. And Jesus does something I think is quite amazing. He's still in the house. And he hears about what's going on with the scribes. And he says, he called them to him and started talking to them. You think about the scribes from Jerusalem have lots of authority. Here's this untrained rabbi going around. And he's saying, actually, bring them to me. It should be the other way around. It should be that the the scribes should be calling Jesus to them. And instead, it's the other way around. And Jesus starts to teach in parables. And uh, and he says, in verse uh, 23, 
or yeah, he says, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And the house is divided against itself, that house cannot, uh, will not be able to stand. And the Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. And, and so it's really kind of simple logic. It's this. Well, Satan, who is Satan all about? Well, Satan. And Satan likes power and authority and his kingdom to grow. Now, yeah, he might do things to deceive people in order to get his kingdom to grow. But if Satan is out in the business of suicide, then his kingdom won't stand. And so it doesn't make any sense for, for Satan to cast out demons and do all these things that I'm doing and the teaching the way that I'm teaching because his kingdom will fall. If a house is divided against itself, it will fall. If a kingdom is at civil war with itself, it will fall. And Satan isn't in the business of falling apart. He's in the business of winning. But then Jesus says, wait, wait, wait. Yeah, even though he's for winning and he's for having a united kingdom and for himself, guess what? Jesus says, but he is coming to an end. And, he's, and he's, he gives a picture. He says, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder the house. And Jesus is basically saying, is this, how can I be of the devil when I have authority over him? Because I am the one who's binding the strong man and taking his plunder. I'm the one that's, anytime I cast out a demon and heal someone or someone repents and turns and follows me, I have bound the enemy and I've taken what he thinks is his. And so all these people who, that are in, in I guess, under the bondage of the enemy, the prince of this world, he's saying, I've bound him and I have authority over him and I've taken what is his. How can I be of Satan? I have authority over him. I have power over him. And Jesus does something crazy at this point. He turns it, like, well, crazy. It's not crazy for Jesus, but he turns it right on them. In verse 28, he says, truly I say to you, this is like almost saying, thus says the Lord. You know, it's, this is from God with authority. He says, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, whatever blasphemies they utter. But whosoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And Jesus is saying, is actually, you are saying that I'm of the devil. Actually, you scribes are of the devil. You're the enemy. You're what's evil. Because what their problem is, is they're calling evil, or they're calling what is good and what is from God evil and darkness and mistruth or falsity. And he's saying that this is something that lots of things are going to be forgiven, but this is a sin that in constant rebellion and hostility towards the truth of God is going to end up in, well, justice and damnation and it is an eternal sin. Now, some people might be thinking, when we stop there and kind of go, wait a minute. Um, Okay, yeah, God forgives all sins. Um, You know, there's nothing can separate me from the love of God. But, but, but I think at one point, at one time, I blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. So I don't really think that I'm saved. All that could be true, but that one unpardonable sin, maybe I did. And I go, well, let's think about this. One, you're taking that out of this context of people calling what Jesus is doing evil. And two is think about Paul. Paul, a Pharisee, a Hebrew of Hebrews, 
he was gaining a name by persecuting the church and killing people, calling the way evil, all these kinds of things. I would think even maybe blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. He's connected with the scribes in a lot of ways. And, and he becomes a Christian, and he writes two-thirds of the, the New Testament. Now, is, is Paul not part of the kingdom and part of the community of the church and one with Christ because he might have committed the unpardonable sin? Uh, I don't think so. I think Jesus is again saying, you call the Holy Spirit evil and unclean spirit, then your, your, your heart is so hard. Your heart is so hard that I don't know if light can actually break in. Because it's like this. This is the picture that I had in mind was, you know, what is my favorite meal? My favorite meal, and I'm sorry for... Some people who don't like meat, but mine is a steak, a nice porterhouse steak that's bigger than my head with a pile of mashed potatoes and some asparagus, you know, to kind of round off maybe one or two. And and then a big thing of garlic bread and I can just smell and the aura and then even maybe, I don't know, to drink, you know, so maybe a big glass of Coca-Cola or something like that. And this, for me, is just like, oh, this is the meal, you know? What else could I possibly need? And the aroma and the smell. And let's say that Jesus is saying, this is the kingdom, this is the truth, and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and if I'm a scribe and I'm calling this evil, it's not going to smell wonderful. It's going to smell like death. It's not going to be, you know, it, it, maybe it's what a vegetarian might think of the steak, which is, oh, that's disgusting. How could you possibly eat something like that? You know, it's so gross. And they see it as gross and ugly and the, the glass is dirty and disgusting and the Coke is flat and, and, and warm. And, but in reality, it's good and it's cold and everything because they don't want to see it. And they're calling what they think is light, what they think is darkness, uh, light. I'm getting that all mixed up in my head. They're calling light darkness and their darkness light. Let's get it that straight. And... So there, there's, Jesus is saying this is almost impossible to break into. Now, Paul is a great example of that not being the case. But people are going to be hard to this. And they're going to be hostile. They want to destroy Jesus. They don't want to believe in what he's saying. And so this is the beginning of the end of the outside, the middle of the sandwich in, in, Mo, or in Mark's story. And, it, and the story picks up in 31 where his family finally arrives from their journey from Nazareth to Capernaum. And his mother and his brothers come and are standing outside. They sent to him and called to him. And a crowd sitting around him um, was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And Jesus answered them, who are my mother and who are my brothers? So what's interesting is Jesus calls scribes to him. And now the authority in Jesus's life is his mother and his family and their kind of trying to save him from himself. And they're outside because they can't get in to this house. And they're calling to him so they can grab him out of this situation and save him from it. And, and then the people sitting around him, and I think the 12 are sitting around him, and the other people who are part of that. Because remember, Jesus has, I think, well, circles of relationship. You have inside the 12, you have three. You know, Peter, James, and John. And then you have the 12. And then outside of that, what do you have? You have uh, the, the, well, the, well, the 70, 72, and then the 120, and then the crowds. There's this, this closeness to Jesus, and I think the close disciples are with him. And he looks around in a full circle, and he says, These, who are my brothers and sisters, or who is my mother and my brothers? What does he say in verse 34? He looks around, and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. 
For whoever does the will of God is my mother or my brother and my sister and my mother. And I think Jesus is just, I think this has got to be mind-blowing for the people in that context. You, you, what are you saying? You're saying that your mom and your brother and sister are outside of your family because they think you're mad? They're joining in with the scribes and the Pharisees who are saying that they're, they're demon-possessed? I mean, that's, that can't be right. And the people that are around you who are not related to you, most likely, I mean, maybe a couple of them are his cousins or something like that, but most of them are not related to him by blood. And he's saying, these people are my family. Because he says, whoever does the will of God is my mother and my brother and my sister. And, or, yeah, and my sister. And what's also interesting, too, is that this, it just reasserts that there's lots of people who thought they knew what Jesus was going to be like that still don't get it. Think about Mary. I mean, a lot of people try to save Mary in this situation. But, yeah, she, in, in other Gospels, um, is faithful, follows God, is, is the virgin that gives birth to Jesus and, and praises God for all that. But I think she probably had assumptions about what the Messiah was going to be like. And right now, Jesus isn't living up to it. And she's outside the camp. I think that obviously changes later on in the story. But she's outside of this and outside the house. And Jesus, again, says, whoever does the will of God is my family. And what is the will of God? And this is really the only time I believe in Mark that it's mentioned. And the will of God is, I think, the last place that we see God talking in, in Mark is God the Father speaking uh, at Jesus' baptism saying, baptism, saying, this is my son whom I love and I'm well pleased. So what does it mean to be in the will of God? One, it means to be pleased by Jesus, to love Jesus as, as much as we possibly can above everything, including family, and to join him in his ministry to preach the good news and to have authority to meet the needs of the needy. It's when you join and follow Jesus, you join his family business, which is giving self away. This is exactly what it means. This, it doesn't go one hand or the other. And it, like for us, we might going to go, there's a danger in this. There's a real danger for us as individuals first is that we can think that is, well, maybe I don't really find Jesus all that fascinating, but I've grown up in the Christian uh, church. And so I'm just going to do Christian things. So I'll read my Bible. I'll go to church. I'll go to life group. I'll even maybe go on a missions trip. I'll do all the things I'm supposed to do. Because i got to make up for the feeling that I really don't like Jesus all that much. And yeah, it's, that's what everybody else believes. But mm, I'm just going to do what I'm supposed to do and, and do the right thing. Or you kind of go, well, actually, my faith is just my own. I love Jesus. He loves me. Yay. You know, and kind of he, my, he's my security blanket. And I can just believe that he forgives my sins. And, but I can keep on just living the way that I want to live. And I can just do what I want to do. And because that really isn't important. What is really important is the grace that I've been given. Right? And, and Jesus is saying, no. No. These go hand in hand. If you love me and follow me, you're going to love what I love. And you're going to hate what I hate. You're going to love the broken. You're going to love the needy. You're going to love people who are even in a hostile to you. And are even oblivious to you. And so what does it mean to be a part of follow Jesus and to be part of his family business, I'm assuming that for us that maybe there's some things in life that go, oh, this is going to cost me. Uh, you know, maybe if you're a teenager or in college, you kind of go, or just post-college, 
You're going to go, well, if I actually follow Jesus and I don't join in and gossip and bullying and teasing people and don't go to parties and do all these things, maybe my friends are going to think I'm crazy or weird and they're not going to understand me. Uh, But Jesus doesn't really like those things and he doesn't love those things. And I want to love Jesus. So I need to make Jesus a priority above anything else. And there's a there's a possibility that that's going to cost you relationships. It's going to cost you maybe what you think is happiness. Right, because. That, that doesn't really flow with what, what it means to follow Jesus. Well, it could, it mean, it, what, what is getting in the way of this, you might think? Well, I think, you know, doubt. Doubt, do I really, is Jesus really for me? Is he really not for me? Do I really want to give my life away to him? Do I really want to give everything and take risks for him? Maybe security. I mean, for a lot of us in, in living in this country, even the poorest of poor in this country is richer than 95 or plus percent of the people in the world. You got it great. I mean, in the States, you're poor when you have one car, a house, a microwave, a refrigerator, and a 36-inch t- television. You're poor. You know, it doesn't make any sense. But how can we reach the poor and the needy that, that well, it might cost you that security. It might cost you those pleasures. And so there's a couple other things. And again, I think I've already hammered it is the, the danger. And I think the danger and the application is the same for individuals here as it is for our community. Just think about the danger for us as Trinity Chippenham. Okay, we've, we've, we've taken risks. We started a church. But this is a question that I got from Francis Chan this week, actually. So I'll give him a hat tip to this. But it's a really good question. Is what do you think is worse? A church that has really bad teaching and doesn't do anything with it. Or a church that has really great teaching and doesn't do anything with it? Well, the obvious answer is the good one that doesn't do anything. That's far worse. And just think about the potential of Trinity Chippenham. I think we're, with the small group of people we have, we're, we're absolutely blessed. We have people with big hearts that are giving themselves away in all kinds of ways. We have, we have this many musicians in a, a church that is like 35 adults. This is, un, it's, it's not real. I mean, I talked to my other friends who are planting churches and th- they have no musical ability and they're having to play music because there's nobody else. And we have six, seven, eight people who can get up here and preach and teach and all agree with what the Bible says and all those kinds of things. That is unheard of as well. Usually a church this size has, if they're lucky, one guy who can get up here and teach and preach. And we have seven, eight guys who can do that. That's not that's not right. That's not normal. We have this great potential of having a great impact in the, our community. Um, but the, I, I hate the word potential. I used to drive it. My dad used to say, oh, potential. You have great potential, Dave. You know what potential means? Yes, dad. I know what it means. I haven't done anything yet. He's like, yeah, you haven't done anything yet. Oh, and it, there used to be, there were some explicitives in that. So uh, I'm, 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 you know, censoring it for church or for just for me now for life it's just you haven't done anything yet you haven't done it and so in a lot of ways we're like talking about what we want to go do but we really as a community haven't really gone out and done it so what does it mean for us to join jesus follow jesus and be a part of his family business what does it mean for us to meet the needs of the religious who are hostile or the, just the, the religious, who think they know everything, they think they got what Christianity is all about, but really never really met Jesus. How can we do that? I think we're doing a lot of that. We're doing church in a way that hopefully can shock people to think Jesus is different, and maybe following Christ is different, and church isn't about certain things. How do we meet the needs of the oblivious? I'm assuming that there's lots of people in our culture and in our lives that are absolutely oblivious of Christianity. 
because they don't really care. They like to do what they like to do, and that's it. They like to be entertained. They like to go to work. They like security. They like to go do Sunday things on Sunday mornings or Sunday afternoons. They don't really care about what Christianity is about. They don't care about God. But they're not, you know, they're so they're oblivious. How do we engage that? How do we get, put ourselves in places as a community where we can engage the oblivious or even the hostile? Think about hostility hasn't changed. We just got done talking about people killing Christians in Iraq. How can we be a voice and, 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 and meet the needs of the hostile? Because Jesus is trying to engage the scribes and the Pharisees where they're at trying to meet their doubts, confronting them, even having to say, whoa, you hypocrites. He's trying to wake them up. But he's, he's, he's being nice and trying to meet their needs. He's not just wiping them off. Or even how do we meet the needs of the, the poor, the widow, the broken in, our, in Trinity or in Chippenham, but in the world. I mean, and I, I could sit here and give you a lot of ideas. I, I like wrote some ideas out of what I wanted to do. But I thought, well, why am I going to do that? Now I'm going to tell you what to do. How about you go and think about, oh, what does it look like for me to follow Jesus and join his family business? And whatever's put on my heart, I better do it. Because what if I don't do it? You know, it's not, I'm not trying to say this is a duty. You have to do something like that. But, oh, what does it, what does it mean? Uh, What does it mean to, to make family less important than Christ? You know, what, you know, because Jesus said, what, it's not worthy, you're not worthy of me unless you love me more than father, mother, spouse, children, friends. My, what I think is right is more important than anything, or Jesus is more important than anything. So I'm not saying this is a bunch of duties that we need to do, but re- reality is that I want to say that Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth taking risks for. Jesus is worth giving our life to. Jesus is worth even maybe making our family uncomfortable. Jesus is worth fighting for relationships that are breaking and broken. Jesus is worth living to the word that needs to be lived for. And to say, actually, I am closer and related to the brothers and sisters who I've never met in Iraq or being persecuted than some of the people in my actual family. That my heart should be going out to my brothers and sisters who are having fleeing their homes because people are hostile to his name and they're burning churches that are 1,800 years old and I want to love them more than I love, well, maybe some of my siblings back at home that don't love Jesus. I, I want to love them. I love them. I care for them. I want them to meet Jesus. But man, they're, they're actually part of my eternal family. And that eternal perspective is so much more important than today. And so I want to say, let's, let's end with this, that Jesus is worth it. We're, we're part of his family. How much amazing is it? How, how could it be any more amazing than this? That the Father, who loves the Son eternally, loves us just as much. And that we get to call the Son of God, brother. And we can get to call him Lord and friend and bridegroom. That we're that close with him. And that is what we get to give our lives to. And eternity starts now. Let's, let's follow him, let's chase after him, let's take risks for him. Let's join his ministry and meet the needs of the needy. Let's pray. Father God, uh, there's so much to think about and dwell on, and, and you've caused me to think so much this week about what it means to follow you, what it means to give my life to you. And I pray, Lord, that you would start to, to wrestle and bring things up in our hearts um, as individuals and even as a community, how we can 
apply and, and, and give ourselves away so that we don't look back in years advancing or years back and go, oh, yeah, Trinity Chippenham had a great potential, but nothing really happened. We just, we beg you and ask you, Lord, that you would do mighty works here in our community and in, in, in Chippenham and in the world through this place. Uh, and we trust you and love you. We just, Lord, we want to join in your ministry. We want to join where you're working. We want to join where you're giving yourself away because we want to follow you and be a part of your family business. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.